All right, let's let's go to the Lord in prayer before we jump into Genesis here. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful and good. We thank you that you are sovereign. You are in control. You have good purposes for everything that happens in this world, even when we don't understand. Help us to be encouraged with that truth as we look at your word this morning. Pray that you'd open our understanding, help us to see areas we need to change, help us to trust you more, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, does the date December 3rd, 2015 mean anything to anyone here? I, I didn't think so. Um, and, um, anyone a football fan in here? Um, it's, it's the date uh, where the miracle in Motown happened. You familiar with the miracle in Motown? Uh, you, you're probably familiar with Motown as a term, so you may be starting to think of what you think that might be, but I'm not sure you really remember unless you're an NFL football fan. But the Detroit Lions play in Motown, right? Well, the Detroit Lions were playing the Green Bay Packers that day, and a rare occurrence was happening. With no time left on the clock, fourth quarter says 0-0-0, the Detroit Lions are winning against the Green Bay Packers 23-21. to You would think they had won the game, but if you know anything about football, what happens is on a defensive penalty, you're allowed to have another play on offense, and that's what happened. They called... What, I, I'm a little bitter, but I'm a Lifetime Lions fan, but that's what goes with the territory. Um, a phantom face mask on Aaron Rodgers, so they got another play. And Green Bay was around their, I think it was their own 39-yard line. If you know anything about football, it's 100 yards, right? So with no time on the clock, Green Bay's losing by two. Aaron Rodgers does a scramble play, gets all around, runs around, runs around. The Lions are chasing him. They can't get him. He throws a bomb down the field, and his teammate catches it in the end zone for a touchdown. Green Bay wins 27-23. They've called that the miracle in Motown. Um, that wouldn't have been my choice. But <laughs> terrible, terrible, terrible thing. How do you as a coach allow a 60-yard pass. I mean, it was essentially 60 yards in the air into the end zone, or more, because he had to be behind the line of scrimmage. He caught it in the end zone. So the coach at the time was Jim Caldwell, and he was asked after the fact, you know, why, you know, it's always the armchair quarterbacks, right? The Monday morning quarterbacks know everything, right? Why didn't you have Calvin John Johnson in there? He plays offense, not normally defense, but he's a six-foot five wide receiver that's very tall, great at jump ball catches. They're like, why didn't you put Calvin Johnson in there? Um, why did you only have three men rushing the quarterback instead of four or five to put pressure on him? Well, and Jim Caldwell's answer was he expected them to do a lateral play, a common move at the end of the game when a team is desperate to, to get a touchdown they don't have any time, is they start doing this pass it behind and, and constantly shuffling the ball around to, to try and score that way. That's what the Lions coaches were anticipating, and so that's how they designed the defense to handle that kind of play. He wasn't expecting a 60-yard pass in the air for the touchdown. Well, 
My point in sharing all of this is not to rehearse my bitterness with the lion's history, even though I could do that. And many of you share it with me. My point is, man plans how he expects things to work, but man's plans fail. Man doesn't know what's going to happen. Man can't account for every scenario. I mean, I was mad at Caldwell, and I thought it was dumb. But in reality, we can't account for everything. We can't. But you know who can, and you know who does? God. God's plans include every detail. God knows everything. And he works out his plan, even as we will see today in this rush through the end of Genesis. It even includes in his sovereign plan the sinful actions of mankind. That's all part of God's plan too. It's factored in. He works through it. He accomplishes his good in spite of our sin. Does that mean we have zero accountability for our actions? It does not mean that. We're going to see that too. We have accountability. But God works in spite of those things, accomplishing his good purposes. So my title for the message this morning, as we look at Genesis 45 to 50 quickly, is, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we see this theme, as, as Paul read this morning, right in Genesis 45, we'll start there and remind you of verses 5 through 8, where Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers, and then he uh, explains that they shouldn't be angry with themselves. He says, verse 5, Now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. They sold him into slavery. He says, For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land two years, and there are still five years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, humanly speaking, it was them. It was their actions. There is human evil that was intended against Joseph. But Joseph has the maturity to recognize this was all part of God's sovereign plan for me. So while you did this with this intention for evil to harm me, God intended that same act for, your, for my good and ultimately for your good and for the good of many people. So we're reminded here right away, point number one, that God produces good out of evil. God produces good out of evil and preserves lives. Joseph reminded his brothers that it was God's plan ultimately to accomplish good by sending him to be a slave in Egypt. This reminds me of Proverbs 19.21. We don't have time to turn to these verses. I'm going to read a few to you, but... Proverbs 19.21 says, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Or Ephesians 1.11, Paul writes that we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, speaking of God, of God's purpose, who works 
all things after the counsel of his will. Our God is sovereign and he is in control and he is bringing about good. But his sovereignty does not exclude our accountability. They're compatible. They work together. We are accountable. We are responsible, as we'll see some of that later too. But our God is bigger. This is an assurance that our God is bigger than anyone or anything that troubles us. Our God is bigger, and it's part of his plan for our good, if we're his children, and for his glory. Now, we read already in, in verses 9 to 15 that the rest of the families to come join them down in Egypt to be with Joseph. He's going to provide for them. I just want you to see verse 17 and 18 real quickly that Pharaoh hears about this and that he reinforces this, that he wants the, the children, uh, Israel and his children to come down. Verse 17, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load up your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Alright, so God is doing good here in this terrible situation that happened to Joseph and this heartbreak that has been caused to his father because his father thought he was dead. God worked through all those circumstances is doing good to ultimately provide for the children of Israel in Egypt. And he's even using the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh here, to provide for them abundantly. So let's see uh, the, the close of chapter 45 here, Jacob's reaction. Jacob's reaction, verse 26. They bring news to him. They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. Can't blame him. That is shocking news. Verse 27, when they told him all the words of Joseph and that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Jacob rejoices. He's reluctant to believe it at first. He's been hurt. He's been saddened. But he is now rejoicing because God is going to give him opportunity to see his son Joseph, whom he thought was dead. This is all part of God's good plan. God works good out of evil uh, in spite of sinful choices of mankind. It's part of God's plan. But we also see here as we move on that God fulfills his promises to prosper for his children in situations like this. Let's look at the beginning of 46. It says, So Israel set out uh, with all they had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. He said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. So we see here, first verse, grateful praise by Jacob. He is thankful to God for this news. He's excited. It's before the vision, so it's not a response to it. He is praising God. He is thankful. And interestingly, this is the same town where God had appeared to Isaac saying in Genesis 26 that he was the God of Abraham. 
So God appears here to Jacob in a dream, and he reminds him of these things. And I would stress to you, we don't have time to look there, but Genesis 12, this is a reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. That's what God's doing here. He says, I will make you a great nation in, in Egypt. I will go down with you, his presence. And he's saying, I will bring you up again. So I'm going to bring you to the promised land in Canaan. So God is reassuring of these promises he originally made to Abraham. He is reassuring Jacob of those same things because he is the one who is the promised heir that God will fulfill these things through and his children. Um, so he is reaffirming these promises to Jacob here in verse 4. And there's also a promise here that he will be reunited with Joseph. This isn't a cruel trick of his sons again. This is reality, and God reassures him that Joseph in, is indeed alive and is there. He will see him, and he'll be with him when he dies. So a great reassurance. Um, but I want you to understand and be reminded that these are demonstrations of God's faithfulness. God promised these things back in Genesis 12. And he is fulfilling these promises. He begin to fulfill them. Ultimately, Jacob dies before he returns to the land. Um, and he is buried there. But um, God is beginning to fulfill these promises as we see in the next verses that um, as, as you look at the rest of uh, 46, which we won't read because of time and, and there's a lot of detail, but basically it's giving the lineage of Jacob. So it's talking about uh, the wives and their children and, and the, the sons that they had and they total them up. All these people coming down to Egypt are 66 people or 70 total if you add back Jacob and Joseph and his two sons that were already in Egypt. Um, 70 people in total. So it's a beginning fulfillment of God making a great nation of them. He's already in the works of doing that. They are multiplying. They are eventually going to be a great company of people, a great nation of people. And if you remember, when God made this promise to Abraham, Abraham had no children at that point. But God gave them Isaac, and they, through Isaac, then had Jacob, and then Jacob has the 12 sons, and God is fulfilling these promises through him. So we see at the end of 46 uh, that Jacob is reunited with Joseph, 28, 29, 30. It says, He sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came to the land of Goshen in Egypt. Uh, Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck, and he wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. So we see family reunited. God has preserved Joseph. God is using Joseph ultimately to fulfill the promises God made to Abraham and his descendants. And we see the beginning of this already happening. God is faithful to his word. He's made a promise. He's made a commitment. He's made multiple promises. And he's keeping them as demonstrated here. I, one other thing I want to point out about this, I went over quickly. But God said, I will go down with you. Now, if you know anything about God and what the scriptures teach us about, teach us about God, 
God is everywhere. He is, as we say, omnipresent, right? He is in every place in the fullness of his being. There is nowhere we can go where God isn't at. So what does he mean to say, I will go with you? I believe the idea is very similar to what we see in Genesis 37, 39, 40, 41, where it says that God was with Joseph. The point isn't that he was physically present and he happened to just see what's going on. The point is he is actively involved working for his good, for his benefit. And that's what God is saying. I will watch over you. I will care for you. I will prosper you, even though you're in a foreign country where you're a stranger. I will bless you. I will prosper you. I will make of you a great nation. You know, we as believers have a similar promise. In Hebrews 13, 5, we are told that God says he will never desert or forsake us. If you're a child of God, God is always with you, but that doesn't mean that he's simply present. It means he is actively working for your good, for his glory. That is cause for great rejoicing. Our God works on our behalf. He prospers us even in the worst circumstances. They were in a famine. There were seven years of famine. Two had already happened. Five more were coming. And yet God prospers them and also and multiplies them. But I want you to see, number three, God also provides for his children at all times. Let's look at chapter 47. The uh, children of Israel come down to Egypt and Joseph sets up a meeting with them. And he takes five of his brothers and then his father and presents them to Pharaoh. And look with me at verse 5, Pharaoh's uh, response here to the five brothers that Joseph brings. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, put them in charge of my cattle or my livestock also. So, we have here God providing for Israel the best of the land. The best of the land is available to them. Now, look at uh, how he responds with Jacob here as well. Or how Jacob responds. 7 to 10, it says, Then Joseph brought his father Jacob, presented him to Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained to the years of my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So, Pharaoh can tell that Jacob is old. And he asks, how old are you? And he says, 130. Now, just doing some quick math to remind you of some details. Jacob's 130 at this point. Joseph is 39 at this point. Because Joseph was 17 when he was sold as a slave. He was raised up to be appointed at 30 years old by Pharaoh after being in Egypt 13 years. He's 30 when he's raised up. There's seven years plenty. He's 37 at the end of the plenty. And there's two years of famine that have taken place. Joseph is 39. So how old was Jacob when Joseph was born? 91. That's right. 
He was 108 when he was sold. And 22 years later, 22 years later, they've been reunited. And God's been providing and is going to provide for them, but he provides the best things for them. This is fascinating. Look what happens, verse 11, and I'm going to draw your attention then what happens in the rest of Egypt. But in verse 11, it says, So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Now, I think you understand in our world today, real estate is valuable, right? Real estate is valuable. Um, it, it's a hot market right now for real estate. I don't know if you have tried to buy a house, or looking at buying a house, try to sell a house, whatever. It is a hot market because there's limited housing available and it often they go up for sale, they're gone. It, it, uh, we, we have some friends uh, not long ago put a house on the market. It was sold in days and for like 10000 or more over the asking price. Real estate is valuable in demand. And in Egypt at this time, they are given the best land. And what's fascinating is they're going to keep it even though the rest of the Egyptians are going to lose their property. Look, due to the famine. Let's look at uh, 13. It says, Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So Joseph is, just like what happened with his brothers, people are coming down to buy grain because they don't have anything to eat. They need food, and he's providing it. So this is so bad and going on for so long that he's gaining all the money of the territory. Egyptian and beyond. Canaan as well, it says here. But it's worse than that. They come back the next year, we see, and they don't have any money or food. So what do they do? Verse 15. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and, and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. So they did. So they sold their animals to Joseph. He got all of that. We keep reading, and then we see that they come again because now their animals are gone. Their, their food is gone again. They're still without money. They don't have anything to do, and they beg Joseph to help them. So what does he do? He basically takes their land and gives them food, but then he sets up a new law, essentially, that what's going to happen is they will farm the land, and they're going to give Pharaoh one-fifth, or 20% of the produce, and they keep the rest for themselves. Now, you read all this, and you're like, that sounds kind of mean, right? He's taking away all their stuff, right? Is this good? Well, that's not how the people saw it at all. Look at verse 25 and 26. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. They're ecstatic. Joseph has rescued them. They don't feel cheated. They're happy to be alive, and they're thankful. And this becomes 
the way it is in Egypt. Now, I would say um, one thing about this is it helped set up the Exodus. We kind of understand why Pharaoh is so powerful in Exodus. Because he's essentially gained control of everything in Egypt. He is the singular power of the land. And this is part of, uh, it seems like a big part of how that happened. All right? But what I want to draw your attention to is God's provision for the people of Israel. Look at verse 27. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it, and were fruitful, and became very numerous. God provides for his children. There is a known world famine at that time going on, and God's growing his children in numbers and their prosperity. Now, it would be wrong for us to misapply this and try to think, well, that means God's going to let me hit it big on the stock market, or I'm going to retire with $10 million. And, and That's not the point. The point is God takes care of our needs. And God gives us often above what we could even ask or think. I love uh, Luke 6, 38 in this regard, and thinking about this. Jesus says, give, and it will be given to you, they will pour into your lap good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. This is an illustration of how God gives to us. And, and not being farmers, perhaps this doesn't necessarily make sense. I would use this illustration to maybe help us understand a little bit. My children and I were uh, cutting down some, some branches in our backyard. Um, on, I think it was Labor Day. On Labor Day, we were cutting down some branches. And we were chopping it up. And what I'm trying to do is we had these branches over the yard that we're trying to get ready for firewood in the winter. But I've got this old green recycle bin that's holding these things. And you know how branches are, especially those little twigs. They can be quite unwieldy and have all kinds of web branches off them, right? And, and not stack very well. So what did we do? We cut them down to single simple sticks of length appropriate to fit in the bin and then every now and then what we do is we'd stack them in there, we'd organize them and I would take the bin and I'd shake it to flatten it out and keep pushing it down. Why? So I could get more in there. And I think that's the picture here of how God gives to us. He gives us abundantly. He provides for us over and above what we even, he tells us in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, over and above even what we could think or ask. He gives to us abundantly. He was doing it here with Joseph and the nation of Israel. He, Joseph is alive. Jacob gets to see him again. They get the best of the land. They're prospering while the rest of the nation is crumbling. God's taking care of his people. Now, at the end of 47, I'm going to go quickly here because we've got a bit of territory to cover. Um, at the end of 47, Jacob makes his children promise. I'm going to die here, but you need to bury me in Canaan. You need to bury me where Abraham brought the plot and, and was buried. I want to be buried there. And so basically Joseph agrees that, yes, I will bury you. And why this is significant, again, because I think it's Jacob acting in faith. He knows that the promised land that God has promised them will be given to the nation of Israel. And 
even though he won't be there physically, it is a recognition on his part of what God is going to do, and by faith he believes that and wants to be there, his remains to be there. It is an act of faith, and Hebrews um, 11 tells us that, that Jacob died in faith. He was looking forward to the promise. Now, we come to chapters 48 and 49, and there's a lot of detail here that we won't cover. I just want to summarize a few things that happen here for you and then move on to 50, which is where we'll close. In 48 and 49, Jacob is going to give predictions, if you will, or prophecy about future blessings, or in some cases, problems, uh, that his children will encounter. And I think this is important in the context of what we're talking about because we're talking about the sovereignty of God and how he works good out of evil. But that does not diminish human responsibility. And we see this play out in the blessings. Those that have done evil, there are some negative consequences for their choices. Even though God sovereignly planned for Joseph to be uh, taken care of and, and, and uh, to provide for the nation and, and for all those blessings, there are still consequences for human choices that are at, uh, at play. And, are, and we are accountable for those things. Now, in chapter 48, what happens here is Jacob goes to Joseph. Joseph uh, goes, to, I'm sorry, jo Joseph goes to Jacob when he's near death. Um, he's much older, he can't see, uh, or can't see very well. And what Jacob explains to Joseph is that he's going to take his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he is going to give them uh, he is going to take them as if they're his own sons. Now, it's a little bit complicated, but I just try to simplify by saying this is the principle of firstborn. In Israel, they had the practice that the firstborn would get a double portion of the inheritance. So that doesn't mean... Um, so uh, some simple math, hopefully, to explain this. So let me, let me just talk about my three children that are here today, all right? So I've got three children here, Elizabeth, Wesley, and Lauren. These are made-up numbers, so don't get excited, all right? So if I'm going to leave those three in inheritance, and I say I'm going to leave $100,000 to my three children, um, normal math would be they get 33000 right? And 300 you know, and $3.33. You understand the point. Alright, so it would normally be divided up like that. But in the concept of the firstborn getting a double portion, you add another portion, so it becomes four, and the firstborn gets two portions. The others get a portion. So using the simple math of 100,000, that means Elizabeth is the oldest one here. Elizabeth is going to get, so divided by four, it's now 25,000. See, it works better. Easy math, 25,000. So Elizabeth, as the oldest, is getting the double portion, $50,000. The other two are going to get 25. So you get 100,000. This is the idea with Joseph. I know Joseph isn't the firstborn, and this is going to come up with, with the other brothers, but Joseph is the firstborn of his favorite wife, Rachel. But the real firstborn, Reuben, did wrong. And so he is actually going to be denied that birthright, and it's going to go instead to Joseph. So what Jacob is saying, when God brings you back to the land, 
instead of giving one portion to Joseph and one portion to the other brothers, he is going to give the double portion to Joseph and the other brothers will each get a portion. So Joseph gets the double portion and what he does to do that is he's going to take his two sons that were his firstborn, two sons that were born in Egypt, and give them the land. So there is no territory called Joseph in the land of Israel. It's called Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph is given the double portion. That's what's going on. That's what chapter 48 is all about. All right? 49. We come to 49. And Jacob is now, uh, look at verse 1 and 2 with me. He says, Then Jacob summoned all his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I can tell you what will fall you in the days to come. So Jacob gathered them to hear. Um, Gather together, O sons of Jacob, and listen to your father Israel. So he's going to read through the blessings and, the, and some of the negative stuff. And I'm going to uh, just quickly summarize a few things and then move to chapter 50 to, to finish up. But Jacob here then goes through all of his sons. He starts with Reuben, his firstborn. And he basically says to Reuben, you were my firstborn. But you committed adultery. And so you are immoral. And so therefore, um, there's, uh, he, he's not going to get the right of the firstborn. And it's essentially given to Joseph. He also talks about Levi and Simeon, who are the second and third from Leah, their brothers. And he says, he basically recounts the events where Dinah, their sister, uh, is treated inappropriately. And they are angry about the matter, so they lie to the men of the land, basically saying, if you get circumcised, then we'll join with you. We'll intermarry and we can trade and all that stuff. So they do it. And while they're still sore, Simeon and Levi go in and wipe out the men of the town. A, a, a pretty brutal act. Um, and so Jacob has negative things to say about their choice as well. And so the principle that I want to just highlight with this is we're talking about the sovereignty of God. He is good. He works good of, out of evil. But our choices do have consequences. And sometimes we make such bad choices that they can have multi-generational consequences. Our choices matter. We need to obey. We need to do what's right. We need to follow God. And yet, we are sinners and we do wrong. So does that mean it's hopeless if we've done something wrong? Well, that's where I think Judah comes in. You look at what he says about Judah, and he has a lot of positive things to say about Judah. And Judah is the one through whom the line of Christ will come. But the Father has positive things to say. We saw in uh, chapter 45, I think it was, Jacob actually sends Judah down ahead of them because he now trusts Judah and how Judah has changed and Judah was willing to be the substitute for Benjamin when Joseph was putting them to the test. So Judah changed. He's an example of how, though yes, we may make bad choices, we can repent and change and some things can be turned around. And it's also not to say that generations later... You have no choice. You're just going to follow in the sins of your fathers or your mothers. That's not true either. It's not, it's not exactly like that. My point is there's consequences, but you all are responsible individual, individually. In fact, in Ezekiel, uh, God deals with this and he says, uh, he, he 
talks about a parable where they say the fathers eat grapes and their children's teeth are set on edge and God's like, no. Every man is accountable for their own sin. We will all answer. And we do see in the tribe of Levi, for example, though they did this thing in anger and it has consequence on future generation, we see some in Levi were zealous for God's honor when there was immorality in the camp of Israel and one of the Levites killed somebody and God praised them for that zeal. So individuals can still choose to do right, but we do need to recognize the seriousness of sin and its consequences. As we close 49, Jacob again uh, makes reference to dying and being buried in the land of Canaan. Um, but then we come to chapter 50 where Jacob dies. So the beginning of the chapter, Jacob dies. They bury him. There's 14 verses about that. I would just summarize to say there was a lot of sorrow. Uh, Joseph fell on his neck when he died, and he's, he's kissing him, and he's, he's sad. And again, fulfillment of the word of God. God saying, Joseph's going to be there when you die. He was. And there's much sorrow, and they go and bury him, as was promised. But then they come back in our key section to finish it out here in 15 to 21. Let's read there. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him, then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He reassures them. They are seeking his forgiveness. I think it's interesting to see their consciences bother them more than 30 or 40 years later at this point from when they originally did. The, they're still bothered. Now, perhaps part of that is they've never fully dealt with it completely like they should have. But what is clear is Joseph has already forgiven them. He's not holding against them because he, by faith, recognizes that God uses all things to accomplish his, his purpose. So instead of being angry with them, he recognized it was the hand of God to bring him to Egypt to provide. And he is thankful for what God has done. He is not bitter at his brothers. Uh, we're told in Romans 8.28, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that we, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. God is in control. Whatever anyone does to us, or whatever our circumstance, ultimately God is in control and is working for our good, for his glory. But there's an if. If you know that verse, or you're familiar with that verse, or you caught it when I was reading, 
this promise isn't universally to all people. This promise is to the children of God. Those who are the called. That is, those that have responded to the call of God ultimately and are his children. The ones he truly knows. Not people who try to do good. Not people who aspire to be a Christian uh, or wear that label. It is people whom he knows whom he has called those who are truly his children those that have repented and turned to Christ in faith for eternal life those are the ones to whom this is true so if you don't know him job number one is to repent of your sin and turn to Christ in faith if you do know him this is a great assurance that our God is bigger Whatever happens, God is bigger, and God is using it for good, though we may not understand it. God is glorified in protecting and prospering his children in times of difficulty. David talks about God prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. God provides. He takes care of his children in the face of danger. God's arm is not shortened. He can and does provide richly all whatever the circumstances, whatever we need. God is sovereignly accomplishing his good purposes, and yet we are still responsible. So my questions as we finish up, are we trusting in God's sovereignty or questioning it? Are we submitting to his sovereignty or rebelling against it? Do we even know God so that this promise, this, these great promises apply to us? If we know God, we should have great confidence in our God, knowing that He is doing good for His glory. And let's rejoice in that and trust Him, whatever He brings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this passage, these passages reveal uh, what's true of our hearts as well. That we don't often understand why you do the things you do at first. All of us at some point in life face things that are really hard. But this passage is a great assurance of your faithfulness, your goodness, your control. Help us to trust you. Help us to be encouraged. Father, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you and therefore can't share in this, these great promises, we pray that you would be good and kind and working in their hearts to bring them to repentance and faith. But for your children, Father, help us to walk by faith, to trust you and be faithful because our choices matter and we need your help to make right choices. Help us to do right and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.